Welcome to the Beyond Measure podcast, where we push the boundaries of insights, innovation, and business strategy, and also indulge our curiosity about human understanding. Today, we'll be talking to Peter Himmelman about one of the seven habits of highly insightful people. This week's habit is about embracing the power of storytelling. My name is Peter Himmelman, and I'm insightful because I'm restless, curious, and adaptable. We are beyond excited about today's guest, Peter Himmelman. By all accounts, Peter has a unique career. He is a Grammy and Emmy-nominated musician, film composer, visual artist, and best-selling author. But yet, in another twist... Peter is perhaps the only rock and roll performer to have received an advanced management certificate from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University and a certificate of leadership development from the United States Army War College. Founded in 2013, his company Big Muse has worked with academic institutions such as the Wharton School, the Ross School of Business, McDonald's, Gap Inc., Boeing, Coca-Cola, and 3M to help leaders and their team experience a fresh and unfettered relationship with their own innate creativity. Wow. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for having me, you guys. Corey and I both, Peter, love a good twisty-turny career story. But yours is one for the records, and bad pun intended there. Um, You are a Grammy and Emmy-nominated singer-songwriter turned business and academic consultant. Not a twist or turn you hear every day. So can we just start with that? Like, what? Why? How how did you go from a rocker to a consultant to Wharton and Coke and Boeing? Well, I get the question, but first I have to give a little preamble to it. There was never a turn into this or to that it was just almost like i think about a an octopus who who grows another appendage you know and and everything that i do i think and maybe we'll explain this a little bit later is very much related to everything else so there was a sort of the ostensible impetus for this you know sort of evolution let's say was about in 2010 or 11 the music business, which now has metamorphosed greatly even from that, sort of the succinct way of describing it is I had this uh, cousin who was a diamond dealer. He's from Israel. And he wanted to know, Peter, how is the music business? I'm like, imagine every diamond that you're selling, Yitzchak, just being you know freely available on the Internet. But, but that's a problem. <laughs> and uh, that was you know, a shift that was happening just as my kids sort of one after another were rolling into private colleges, something that I never went to. I had to look up and see if, if in fact, I did graduate from high school. We were all relieved. Oh, my God, he did. I, I got out on a technicality. You know, I guess that curious piece that I put in there in my you know, which I sounds braggy. I was embarrassed to talk about that. But since since those are your words, not mine, I am insightful because uh, I'm also very restless and curious that that's something that I thought. And I've always done different things with my music. I used to, to make, I moved from Minneapolis to New York and 
needed to, to bring in some money and I started making music for fashion shows, you know, completely out of what I normally did. But since they were related, I could kind of tweak it and see. And around that time in 2011, I, I wondered, you know, I just sort of had time to muse and think, what, what is it that I learned in a kind of a, a abstract or larger scale sense in a bus, in a van, touring clubs, writing songs, working with a group of musicians to create all these songs, what in there might be interesting to business? And business, my, my dad was a serial entrepreneur, so I understood something about business from that end, but knew nothing about you know the ROI. I mean, it, it, VC, none of these terms meant anything to me. I didn't know they existed. And, and what I found, and we can sort of detail this, this path of mine a little more if you'd like, was that everything that I learned was exactly what they were teaching in places like Wharton or Kellogg or, or that business was worth thinking about. Although we didn't use the word leadership, God forbid, in a, in a band that you'd be, you'd be pariahized in a two in two seconds we're talking about leadership just shut up and play your guitar <laughs> yeah. you know, like you're out of here but but truly the ideas of resilience adaptability improvisation diligence courage all these things uh storytelling these were things that were native and fundamental to what, what i was doing and as i started to dabble in this the first few offerings i would call a friend of mine who had been working at a certain corporation. Hey, what do you think? Could you bring me in? You know, I won't charge you. It would just be a way for me to figure this out. And I, and I very soon learned that, well, what, two things. One was the, the principles that I was going to espouse were, were needed at these companies. They were talked about. That was kind of a surprise to me. The other thing was is that because it's coming from a disparate source, you know, um, a rock musician speaking to somebody, let's say at Boeing, and making those bridges and connections, when you do that from these seemingly disparate places, the connection and the learning is, is so much more powerful than, than sometimes bringing it from within. Same way if I, if I had had a business person speak to us about how to how to achieve better at a, in a band or music situation it would be more resonant than a drummer telling me what i already know but here's a different sort of language coming at me and it, it would it would weigh upon me more heavily more importantly yeah well Corey and i peter have have had the opportunity to experience you in that setting with seed strategy where you came in and i'd love to hear more my head was nodding to everything that you said just that unique perspective and that you're an outsider, you weren't another business person and that you connected all those dots in a way that maybe made us receive it more easily. I was curious about your use of music in business and how you use it to, uh, you've talked about how you use it to unite people, to unlock creativity, to tell stories. And we experienced writing a song together with you and can you talk a little bit more about that and how you came to that? You know, music, as everyone knows, has a, a very unique and, dare I say, spiritual quality. And, and when I, what I mean by spiritual quality is 
we deal with things in the physical world, this glass, you know, in the temporal world, they're, they're tangible objects or tangible ideas. But music is interesting and always has been to me because there is no, there is nothing tangible about it. It's mysterious in the sense that it has no physical properties. It's the result of sound waves being moved. We hear it. And upon hearing, which is, one might say, a very spiritual quality, meaning there is no physical substance there, but leads us to all sorts of powerful thinking. Now, sometimes I'll be outside in a, you know, New York City back when it was functioning. You'd, you'd see like a glass front in a club and people would be dancing, let's say, at a restaurant. You couldn't really hear the music, but you'd see these people you know, otherwise not insane, but dancing and moving in ways that would be completely anathema to doing in any other experience. How is it that they got themselves into this childlike condition? In the absence of music, it would almost be impossible, but there's something very powerful about these invisible waves. And sometimes I like to think about the different instruments not as well here's a trumpet and here's a bass and what they really are if you have to look at them closely is they're they're wave shapers so a trumpet would shape a very fast wave a piccolo even faster a bass a slower wave they're just different means of creating these and and all of this is taking place on an invisible level so i mean that's just to sort of set it up in that way what it does on a on a on a utilitarian level, if you can use that word, uh, for people of all kinds, but since we're talking about business, it almost serves as a means for people to think differently by having gotten permission. It allows people, it coaxes them, it guides them, it protects them. Like, you know, it's easy to show your personality at a masquerade ball because you're wearing a mask and music is somewhat of a mask in a sense i i sometimes have thought of it not that i'm a hunter but people that sit behind a duck blind and they're kind of hiding and waiting and this allows you to be perhaps you know music to be more emotional to be more connective to be more physically alive than one would be without it so for me, the music isn't so much that I'm interested in people becoming musicians or songwriters, but I understand its power over me and lending it to others. It is, as I said, a permission-giving device. That's its efficaciousness, its utility. Very interesting. Yeah, I think another piece of bringing in that outside perspective that makes people perk up and listen is that you, you bring a different language to them. In, in corporate America, we, we speak with the same words every day. We talk about the same kinds of things. You mentioned ROI. Just as a quick example, we've got lots of acronyms beyond that one. But you come in with a, a musical language, and it, it has that ethereal quality, and it has uh, room for people to explore and, and play with a totally different set of tools and, and, and different language altogether. Yeah, you bring in this idea of language. I mean, musicians have their own language, too. <clears throat> and I would to say that it becomes tedious as well and one needs to know the terminology just to gain some credibility you know hey can you tighten that you know snare underneath you know or whatever super technical things you'd say 
you know, it's it's like you're at A441 to get it to A440, get into, oh, well, he's one of us. Yeah. But it it only establishes that. Then you, st- you, then you start having to talk, if you really want to get somewhere, in more human terms. You know, all of us need to get out of our rote language mm-hmm. and start speaking about something that's more universal. Yeah. So each of our seven habits has a muse that goes along with it. And each of these podcasts is covering one of the seven habits. This one's all about storytelling. And we chose you as the storyteller muse. We believe you personify and exemplify that that storyteller, given a lot of what you've already said, but especially your songwriting style. And when we teach teams about the seven habits, one of the things that's important for us to teach is writing a tight presentation, writing a compelling presentation, one that's relevant, one that doesn't go on and on and use a lot, a lot of words. We use examples like the six-word story. We coach teams about how to write better headlines on PowerPoint slides, if you must use those. And this all brings me to some of your song titles. And I chose one that I'd love to hear you talk about because a song title has very few words and yet it evokes a story before you even press play and listen to it. I'd love to hear you talk about impermanent things. And I chose that one before we started talking, but a lot of what you've just said really does fit and and flow nicely into hearing what might be behind the story of impermanent things, just the the spiritual nature of music like you talked about and how it it shakes those sound waves and, and then it stops and it's gone. We can capture it on physical media, but it really is that spiritual thing. I'd love to hear you talk about impermanent things, please. Yeah, I mean, I'll, uh, because I generally have written, you know, perhaps thousands of songs. Not all of them have been, you know, purveyed to the public, but usually I'll, I'll know something about those songs, almost like, uh, not to be hyperbolic, but you give birth to these things, especially right. the ones that, that endure. And you almost know when you're writing them that this one could have a shot at in being an enduring one. That's a thought that you want to kick out of your mind because it, it can kind of conflict with, ooh, this is a good one. Just just don't, don't think about that. But the good songs, first of all, and I'll, I'll specify a bit about impermanent things in a second. The good songs usually come without saying, which might strike people as being the, you know, obvious. Um, when people think of writing a song, they have an idea and they, they write a song based on a certain, I don't know, a dog or a walk in the woods or whatever it is. Those work and sometimes you have to do it. But the better songs start when there's nothing there there may only be an impetus to write and uh it reminds me of something i read an uh, interview with jasper johns the, the great american painter and sort of unlike uh perhaps renaissance painters who had done all sorts of you know pre-work and had a sponsor they, they knew exactly what they were doing jasper johns said you know when i approach a canvas I don't know what I'm going to do, at least in the in the best cases. And I'm led to an experience through, through not knowing the first sort of 
strokes of, of, of my brush will lead me somewhere that I don't know. And those are, at least for me, in an analogous way. I was writing a song. I was going to be on a, it was a telethon with some well-known people. And, and for some reason, that became the impetus. Well, I'll just write a song this morning that we might be able to do on this thing this afternoon. And the phrase, uh, all these impermanent things, I wasn't thinking about some philosophical idea. I just started writing. Or maybe I was playing something on the guitar, some sort of melody that evoked these words. Impermanent things Oh, how they fool me Dominate and rule me They keep me waiting here for All these impermanent things Where the beauty's never aging But the worthlessness enraging You know, we always stand alone When we're together so why keep hanging on To things that never stay Things that just keep stringing us along From day to day And once the idea of, of all these impermanent things came out I... I started asking myself a, a question, you know, why the chorus of the song becomes, why keep hanging on to things that never stay, keep things that just keep stringing us along from day to day. It's almost impossible for me to remember a song unless I'm playing the guitar with it. But um, I got very deeply into asking myself these questions i wasn't thinking about an audience i wasn't thinking about wow this could be a hit because that would really wreck the flow of the song i wasn't thinking about playing it on the telethon either that day it just was like yeah these are things that i'm really wrestling with um and while that isn't really a story song per se there's a story around the, the sort of the creation of that song and then when i wrote it you know, I I just thought, well, this is, you know, this is interesting. I didn't think this is so great. But you also have to, when you're writing, you have to, and maybe when you're thinking about telling a story, you have to believe in it, at least for that time, for it to emerge. You can't start judging it harshly. You have to support it and believe in it as you would with a child. And, and give it life because you can always reject a song later but there will be no song to reject or to amend if you don't give it this very positive impetus that this is special and the more special it, it becomes the greater the impetus the more it it rains down on you and and this sounds maybe odd but I'm sure everyone has experienced this in their own life and business you know writing a presentation we've all had that experience where if we somehow loosen our hold on our intellect which is very important but also can impede 
this dreamlike space. And we all know this experience of, of time passing effortlessly. And, and an hour goes by, it, it was like, it, was, it, it went by so quickly. And, and here I came up with this thing that's very unusual. And in some ways, it's beautiful. And in other ways, it may be so telling that I don't really want, I'm, I'm embarrassed to bring it to people. It's so, it has a vulnerability about it, a fragility. But when you have the courage to overcome your fear and present it to people, you find that they too have had those instances. And if it has that fragility, it has that sense of being born out of wonder, it will strike people very powerfully. And, and maybe that gets to the essence of, of storytelling somehow. You know, where, you're, where one isn't painting themselves as a hero or there's something perfect about me or this experience, but exploring the imperfections and asking questions within the context of a story. Peter, you talked about that in crafting your songs and getting in that flow state that Chicksamahali wrote a book about flow and getting where time passes, hours could pass and it feels like minutes. Is it intuitive or is there any advice that that's at a conscious level that you could tell us about how to get into that flow state? You've shared a lot, but our team and the teams we work with could really benefit of and probably are the types that would could use a tip or trick or a tool, a thought on how to get into that. Well, first, the flow state, which seems very dreamy and sort of, you know, ephemeral and emotional the the interesting thing is is that in order for it this this flow state let's say to make itself manifest within a, a business proposal or a conversation or a song or whatever it is that you're presenting you have to have a format you have to have a foundation you have to have a firm structure and sometimes that might strike some people as odd well isn't that sort of uh at odds one is this ephemeral dreamy state and this other thing is this rigid architectural state and at least in my experience the two must go together so the first trick is for people to rely and gain courage and confidence from their expertise the people that you're talking about and they you, you know would like me to offer some tips to they're experienced they're super smart they have incredible resources that they've accumulated through the years and they have expertise so that needn't be abandoned at all i think one of the tricks is is to understand well what is it that you've experienced to sort of take stock of your great resources and expertise and say, you know, they're not paying me all this money because I'm just some schlub off the street. That I'm, you know, I, I, I'm important. They value me, and for good reason. The other thing to think about is who am I serving with this? How am I making a difference through this? I don't know what it could be, whatever it is that I'm writing. 
so that you're not thinking about aggrandizing yourself. I just got to be good so they'll, they'll love me. I get that. I have that too. We all do. But as a trick, number one, you're relying on this fundamental of resources and expertise. And two, you're feeling and thinking very deeply about, well, how can I help uplift people? What is it that I know that can enrich the lives of others? And, and that is a very powerful technique in pushing away our fear. Because we will generally do for other people more than we will do for ourselves. We will often come to the defense of other people more readily than we will to defend ourselves. That's our good nature. And I think, well, that's a little sort of esoteric, you know, to break it down. Think about your expertise and think about what it is and who it is that you'll be serving through whatever it is you're creating. And it's a powerful combination. That was perfect. The reorientation of who are you serving is a big paradigm shift. I, I would think for me, as I write presentations, tell business stories versus me, and what am I going to say? And even changing that language in your head. I'm not like one of these, oh, I'm always working for the benefit of others. I'm completely f fighting off this tendency to aggrandize myself. I mean, we all are, particularly if we've developed skills and we've gotten applause or money for those skills. So then we want more of that. But that's a, a, a very sort of, it's a small-minded thing. It won't lead us really where we want to go in any sense. Right. And if right. you find that you're really having trouble thinking about who is this going to serve and come to a conclusion that it's not serving anyone, quit your job. Do something else. I mean, seriously, I hate to say that. You know, I'm right. assuming that there that people stay with things because at the at the seed of it, you know, uh, at the root of it, there is a means of serving people, and that, as you know, is how how joy comes to pass. That's how we we become joyous for, through serving others. There's really no no higher way to do that. Absolutely. Well, speaking of others, uh, this might be a, a good time to check in with uh, Dave. Dave is uh, taking a look at some of our friends, Peter, on Facebook for their definition of an insight. So Dave, we'll kick it over to you to share one of those definitions from one of our Facebook friends, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Kevin B. has a great one. He says, I see an insight as more than knowledge or information. It's a connection. Connection is so much more personal than just knowing, and when it's personal, you can feel it. And when you feel it, you become empathetic. Mm, that's beautiful. That's, that's nice. Wow. Yes. I mean, perfect. And not knowing what we were going to talk about in your, your <clears throat> answers, Peter, there's a lot that I can imagine. I'm seeing your head nod. Connection, empathy stepping inside someone else's shoes and really knowing we aspire to in our work have that kind of empathy at the at the head level and at the heart level as well to get to insights as we think of serving a lot of our work is in innovation and coming up with better solutions products and services to truly make an experience or a product better what did you hear in that in kevin b's definition of an insight that kind of rang true with you 
Well, I mean, I don't remember exactly all the words, but I remember the feeling that I got. It was beyond knowledge, I think, that Dave had quoted. And, you know, how that landed on me, it was beyond, I guess everyone talks about this, that there's so much information out there now that, that and never in the history of humankind has there been this wealth or this, however you want to look at it, this distraction, the storm of information. And an insight is something that moves a person. So a true insight would be, or one that isn't superficial, it, it, it caused you to have an epiphany in that moment, in the moment that you gained it, and it changed you osmotically. Somehow there was, an, there was a change in your behavior that may well be an indelible one. That's where an insight becomes very strong and powerful. I mean, I had an insight. I was in Minneapolis the other day. My stepfather, my dad died when I was young, and my mom remarried. And my stepfather, his name is Richard, were married for 33 years. And we, we were with him in hospice, and he had passed away, and we all stayed in the room where his body was. This is an insight that sounds obvious, but there's something visceral about a real insight. And you're seeing this person who was inordinately successful. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He was uh, taught at Harvard. He was the CEO and chairman of the board of this incredibly huge Fortune 100 uh, industry. And there you see he's lifeless. And you, the insight that, you know, it's so unavoidable as his body, I mean, to say looks like this, it, it, it grew colder. That the only thing that's really at stake and at play here is the relationships that you make. And those people that are close to you, those people that will grieve and mourn for you and care for you, and those that you will care for. And while we, while we want to do our best work and achieve and and uh and grow if we lose sight of this insight well what's it all for that that isn't the underpinning that that becomes fundamental and not the other way around that we're going to establish ourselves with these very successful people and maybe add on a couple of uh relationships to make sure that we have it sort of the priority set that was an an example of an insight that i i recently had yeah. beyond knowledge as dave had quoted mm -hmm. yeah I, another uh, topic that's come up is is that patience is is a virtue of of being insightful you've got to give those patterns time to emerge and and boil away the parts that are anecdotal boil away the parts that are the facts and the data yeah i mean patience is something that people talk about being uh, up, there's a paucity of patience these days, mm -hmm. and that could well be an effect of, you know, human species in general. But I think the way that we receive information, the way that we listen to music, for example, forget that people aren't sitting and listening to full albums of music as they once did. Most people that I've encountered, because music is so abundant, there's no scarcity. You're listening to, you know, the first few lines and skipping on to a next song, getting the groove. And 
the the patience it takes to read a book you know book publishers are having a hell of a time with that mm-hmm. because the speed is that's expected of people to come up with an answer to come up with an insight is is escalating so much there's one other thing that i heard that could relate to patience i read this article there's this writer who wrote for the wall street journal his name is david french and one thing that he cited at least as far as i took it that was a problem in our polarizing society was that people men in general were were not having friendships as they once did because friendships do require patience and time and they were too busy and in particular friendships with people with whom they didn't always agree and it's in those those deeper friendships where time can stretch out and we have the time to discuss and disagree where our polarized views become softened Mm-hmm. or we gain at least empathy to what the opposition is thinking. And he, this David French, this article went on to say that this could be a one of the manifestations of this. It could be directly affecting politics and polarization. So, yeah, patience is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the conversation today, Peter, has it's been outstanding and validating for inviting you to talk about this particular habit of never underestimating the power of story, all in the context of, of insights. We wanted to have you think specifically about innovators, people that are innovating new products and services in any number of categories or the kind of teams we work with. Is there anything with that habit and story in mind that you would specifically say to people as they think about innovation? Yeah, I mean, we haven't really gone too deep into like the nature of story here, but maybe I'll try to weave that into this this idea. One, One thing that is important to do, and I'm sure you guys have thought about this, sort of the differentiation between creativity writ large and it's sort of broad and abstract sense in innovation and at least the definition that that i carry with me um and it's always subject to change is that creativity is ephemeral it's nebulous it's broad and abstract it has no direct uh implications it's a dream state it's a it's a state of mind where we're very free and unfettered in a certain way. Innovation is the process that leads directly from that. So as soon as you start taking action on, it could be a conversation as an innovation or an idea for a product, as soon as you start sketching it out on a napkin, now you've left creativity, not entirely, but now you've entered the zone of innovation where you're taking this dreamy idea state and bringing it into a manifested state. So I guess one of the steps that's often skipped, especially with people who are have been led to believe that they are rational and that the pressure's on to coming up with something important and serious and rational, maybe you're an engineer or something, and the idea of dreaming, let's say, as, an, as, quote, an artist would, you know, whatever that means, 
would seem to be sort of outside the provenance of, of what they do. And I'm suggesting that companies, you know, understand the depth of utility for, for this state of creativity to spark it could be reading an inspirational story or giving time for people just to walk in nature. You know, this is, this is, sounds like, well, this is for, I'm paying the guy to walk in the woods. I don't get it, you know, like, or listening to music or writing a letter to somebody that you love. Now, these things, if you, if you have to speak of the utility of them, they tend to push our fears of judgment away. The fear of judgment is will constantly come back. There's people that say, you know, I can make you a fearless, that never will happen. We'll always be anxious hilarious, as my grandma Rose would say. Oi, he's such a nice, he's hilarious. He's just an anxious person. But you have to carve out time where that anxiety, where those circumscribed thinking, it can broaden. It's very important. And from there, from the insights that you glean, then you can derive a process of innovation going in to create something. There was an article, I think I posted on LinkedIn from Inc. Magazine, which was all the data is showing that people are less creative than they were at any time since these measures have been taken since the 30s. And one of the reasons that they cited, and in children perhaps especially, is that nobody's bored anymore. Mm-hmm. Boredom, and I guess I didn't want to use the word boredom in my what makes me an insightful person. I get bored a lot, you know. Like I use the word restless; it just sounded better. But truly, it's like uh, I don't know what to do. I'm I'm I I'm just thinking about things. You don't have that anymore. As soon as you're bored at the store, you're reading the news or you you're on Facebook. That stuff is detrimental to the dream state. It's detrimental to creativity and therefore to innovation. Writing a story about the best day of your life, for example, something I have people do, and then perhaps writing it into a song. What, what is the best day you've ever had? And describing it in detail so that you, you ignite one of the greatest faculties of the human mind is memory. Because there is, in fact, no present. Everyone's talking about mindfulness in the present. There isn't a present. There's only a tiny, infinitesimally small bridge between the past and the future. Recalling the past, especially things that are beautiful and poignant and moving, not spending quite as much time on, wow, why did I screw that up so bad? You know, it's not going to be helpful is really a nice place to begin with. So the other thing that I found when having people write songs about these ideas is that the things that made their day the best, they almost never cost anything. I held my grandchild up, you know, to the sunlight and hugged him or and we all ate, you know, pastrami sandwiches or whatever it was. It's there's not it, everything that's meaningful is, is pretty much at your fingertips right now. 
You don't have to spend billions of dollars to go into outer space to have a good time, although that would be interesting. Right. Well, maybe you can do it right from your, your living room with a piece of paper and a notebook. I, uh, I was out to dinner last night. I was traveling on business and last night sat, had dinner at the bar and pulled out my journal and pen, which I just keep everything personal, professional musings in it. And I had three people comment that it wasn't a phone and that it was a journal and opening up that space. And sounds like that's something that whether it's bored or restless or reflection is a powerful thing. I think that's, that's great. The act of like physically writing, Mm -hmm. you know, when we, when we sort of disinhabit our intellectual life and we dance or we walk in nature or we do a sports or, you know, cook or there's, there's so much, uh, living in this two dimensional world, this, cerebral world of the of the internet it's so much of it and and it takes a lot to wrest a person away from it because it's so enticing and they're designed to be enticing do you know how difficult it is to shut off the iphone (laughs) you know like it takes a little effort and they know that i mean it was completely designed that way it's because you know those who design it they don't want you to get off it that's how they make their money Right, right. And, and you, it takes a certain amount of uh, understanding and uh, courage to, to leave it behind. Peter, before we let you go, we wanted to do uh, one last thing. We've been talking a lot about uh, insights and really insights ultimately in terms of a tool is great questions, right? And having really insight-provoking questions. And my partner, Corey, here is over the years has uh, crafted and curated a set of amazing insight-provoking questions, ones that we use with consumers and qualitative research or that we use with each other, uh, we use to do some of the reflection. So Corey has pulled out his treasure trove of questions. All right, Peter. <laughs> Tell me, please, who was a neighbor from your childhood that was particularly memorable? Oh, yeah. It's a kid named Doug, and he's no longer a kid. He's a very successful 62-year-old. He was my best friend by far. Okay. And we would, we would make these games up where we would... They were absurd games. I'm, they're, only now, this has been 50 years since I've even thought of this. They had this welcome mat, and we would pick off the little treads on them they're like the little things the rubber things that stick up we'd twist them off and we'd pick off a thing and we'd roll down his hill that was the one of the things we'd pick off a thing roll down the hill and in order to roll down the hill and experience a joy you had to pick off a thing and it was in 1969 this was this was my idea it was it was pretty cruel but i'll have to admit it so i was eight or nine years old and there was another neighbor who who uh had a kind of domineering mother and it would be about seven at at night in the summer where kids would go and play you know back then i don't know if they do that anymore they probably just on their phones but every night this kid would have a new excuse as to why he couldn't play and so doug and i we took a stick and we went like this 
Ladies and gentlemen, with us today on Excuse Time 69, we're going to go across the street and get tonight's excuse. <laughs> we made like a TV show about it. But, you know, uh, I met Doug in New York. I hadn't seen him in, in maybe 10 or 20 years. Okay. And I was a little nervous. I met him in New York. He there, was there to, to meet his son. And I was a little nervous to see, like, well, maybe I won't like him because I was so close to him. I felt so bonded. He was my best friend. Then he moved yeah. away. And when I met him, you know how when you meet somebody, you're either attracted or just it's just neutral or you're repelled. I was so attracted to him. Mm-hmm. And as I got finished with our hour and a half, you know, we went to lunch and we took a walk. I was just like, this guy, I, he could be my best friend today. He's got such integrity. He's got such intelligence and such insight. And that's my thought about Doug. All right. (laughs) Excellent. That's great. Well, as we, Peter, close the podcast, there's something Corey and I have yet to crack, which is how to end it, how to like stick the landing. You know, we don't have a uh, Edward R. Murrow, you know, good night and good luck, or Ron Burgundy, you know, stay classy, San Diego. So we've just been turning over to our guests to, to give us an idea take on how out. we should take us out of here, Peter. Are we still in the seed strategy zone or no? We are. Okay, so <clears throat> if you're in the need, you've got to get down to the seed. You've got to pull apart the weed. You've got to set aside your greed. There's something you must heed. That is paying attention to what's inside and deep inside the seed. With Corey and Sherry, those two know what you've got and what you need. Oh, Very good. Well. That'll do it. Not the best, but I'm working on it. Thank you so much, Peter. This has been an installment of Beyond Measure, a Burke Incorporated production. 